from Baltimore, Maryland, this is The Stoop Sessions, a One Hope podcast. Join us for conversations about ministry on The Stoop. Learn more about our work at www.onehope.gives. Welcome back to The Stoop Sessions. So it's one thing to to watch someone um, who you don't know struggle with addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's entirely different to see someone that you know, someone that you love, uh, struggle with addiction. So let's just continue our conversation on addiction. We spent our last episode talking about addiction. What is addiction? Today, we're going to talk about uh, how do we help those who have hit rock bottom? How do we help those who are ready to to change, how do we help those who are looking for some some change in their life? I know for me, it hit my home as I watched my father struggle with drug addiction, uh, heroin addiction, uh, throughout my childhood life, all the way up in through my adult life. Uh, he, one thing that I always admired about my dad though is that he never um, stopped trying to get clean. You know, he he took advantage of you know the resources that were out there. Detox, um, different rehabilitation centers, um, and for a time, I think those things uh, work. But you know, for some reason, you know, he, he continued to have his struggles. So, as far as you remember, Eric, like your dad was just constantly relapsing. Yeah, getting over it, fighting it, kicking it, relapse. Yeah, had some periods where, like, things were going very well. Yeah. Like, I mean, for years. Yeah. Like, months, years, and, you know, then for whatever reason, would uh, relapse. Were you ever, like, aware of what some of those reasons were? What what were some of those triggers? And I remember when his mom died, which was my grandmother. That really, he was really close. Um, they had a really close relationship, so I know that was one reason that sent him, um, you know, that caused a relapse and also just not working at the time like some periods where he was unemployed and you know as a man you want to you know you want to work you want to provide for your family and you know that pressure of wanting to provide but not being able to that probably caused him to, to relapse too yeah and just the reality that you're made to work and so right. not even living in light of you know, different different parts of how he was fashioned, I'm sure, exactly. were struggles. How did it affect you as his child? It, it hurt. I mean, it was it was just You're me. You're the only child? Only child. Only child. So it was just me, my mom, and my dad. Um, and just watching them, you know, someone you love, it's like, man, sometimes I doubt it. Like, well, do you really love us if you keep, you know, struggling with heroin? Like, do you love that more than you love us? You see the pain, you see the hurt that it's causing us. Like, why do you keep doing it? Yeah, that shows the the fact that addiction doesn't just affect the person who is entangled in that addiction. It affects everyone around them. So just like grief sin. of sort. Mm-hmm. Just like sin. That's right. Yeah, it causes us to grieve. One of our church members who has spent years in addiction said something similar about his own relationship with his uh, his kids. And that is this question of, like, did I really love them all those years? Like, I just neglected them. Felt like it was such a selfish move to um, uh, to get high, 
as opposed to pouring into his kids. But he said, when I was high, I didn't think of it. You know, it just never crossed my mind for all those years uh, of, of this continual relapse, continually getting high. And um, but then there there came a point where he hit this moment of like, I'm done. I want to I want to go a different direction. And this, this, you know, maybe this was like the 100th time that he's come to this, you know, this place. Yeah. But now he just so happens to come to this place among us. And now the question we face is, okay, so now how do we help this person? Uh, this probably isn't the first time that they've wanted to change. How do we help them? I mean, what are our, what are our options? I think uh, for us, I think it's good um, as we mentor, as we counsel them, to help them to identify, you know, like the things that are causing them to relapse, things that are causing them to get high. If it's pain or, you know, whatever it is, we, we should help them to identify it so we can, you know, better walk alongside them and yeah. pre to prevent those things from happening. I think, too, just the fact that that individual has uh, approached um, either you or anyone uh, with a desire to change. I think it, identifying that humility, it, it is... It is a hard road to want to um, stay clean, to love the Lord, to be able to deal with the same struggles that you're dealing with, but in a way that is healthy, in a way that is biblical. And so I think the humility part is, is, is huge. And it's an aspect that we can't want. We can only want for someone, but we can't provide that humility for them. Right. And so it seems um, kind of like a nebulous step, but it's very important for someone to be so desperate to say, I think I'm ready to get help. And I don't exactly know all that that is but I'm, I'm here. And uh, so we, when we say we, we're thinking like not just the three of us, but we're thinking our church as well. That's right. And, you know, as, as we're thinking of this podcast, you know, hopefully this podcast could be helpful for anybody, uh, no matter what their faith background is, but we're unapologetically thinking of Christians who are part of churches. And so how can then churches be a resource uh, in helping people move from A to B to uh, continue to, to achieve sobriety in their life. And we, we, we can talk about counseling, one-on-one -on -one mentorship, life on life. Um, before we do, though, when we talk about addiction to substances, well, which substance are we talking about, right? Right, exactly. So what does it look like for somebody to come off of alcohol versus heroin versus marijuana? You know, these, yeah. we're, these are different. Yeah, so I know with, with alcohol... You have to be careful not to, you know, get somebody to quit just cold turkey because, right. um, you know, that body develops that um, dependence on it. They can get really, really sick. A friend of mine who's a pastor in D.C., and I mm -hmm. met with one of his guys that he was reaching out to, and he was drinking like a case and a half a day of beer. You know, so that's a lot of alcohol. Yeah. And, and I told him, like, hey, bro, you know, as you're thinking of uh, pursuing sobriety, because that's what he was talking about. I was like, you just you can't just stop drinking. You need to go to the doctor, and you know they give you medicine to help you come off of that. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think it's maybe good if you don't have a whole lot of experience with people who are um, really on alcohol. It's probably good to know that uh, you've got to get some medical oversight, and um, you know, don't just like tell them to stop drinking. Like, make yeah. sure. Actually, a friend of ours. Uh, in Scotland, mm -hmm. Mez McConnell, That's right. they went on a retreat with somebody who was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. They consulted with the physician prior to going on this retreat with this guy. And the physician basically said, like, he's got to drink a little bit. So they, yeah. they packed a couple cases of alcohol. 
and just like medicine, they gave him a can every couple hours or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, yeah. it's kind of weird when you're coming from like, especially like a conservative exactly. Christian background. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you can't just come off of that stuff. Yeah. So abstinence, one thing. What else can the church do? Well, I think for heroin, uh, opioid addiction, fentanyl, all, all of those, all of the above, um, their abstinence, of course, is the goal. Yeah. And uh, there's going to be a, a detox there. From what I understand, I'm not an expert on this. I've just had experience with people who have come off. But um, al- coming off of alcohol will kill you, could kill you. Um, coming off of heroin, uh, you won't die. It'll just make you feel like you're about to die. Like I said before, watching my dad struggle with addiction, um, I remember like times where he was going through withdrawal mm-hmm. and just like very sick, like you know, stomach cramps, stuff like that. Like, it's an ugly picture, man. Yeah. Like, watching, you know. Oh yeah, you get real and, sick. Yeah. Which is why people keep going back to opioids. Yep. That's why they, you know, it's it, that's why we have this continual relapse is because yeah. they get they get sick. Yeah, and we don't, you know, who wants to be right. sick, right? Yeah. yeah, so so for somebody just to, you know, well, just stop using, it's it's just not that easy because heroin, what it's doing is it's it's changing the pathways in your brain. It's just you're, it turns you into a robot of like I've got to use, and you know, I've I've been working with people who uh, don't even remember how they got back to the block buying buying their stuff again. Uh, because they just get into this robotic stage of like, I've just got to use it's It becomes so compulsive. And so to come off of that is extremely painful uh, and difficult. So as we're thinking about different approaches, of course, there's abstinence that we like just not use. Um, but there are others who are a proponent of using drugs to get off of drugs, such as methadone or Suboxone. Uh, what do you guys think of that? You're not the expert? I'm not the expert on that matter. It seems like everybody has a... <laughs> yeah, I'm not Everybody the seems to have a perspective yeah. on this. You don't, you don't have any perspective on this? So I always found it weird to, to use drugs yeah. to get off of drugs. That's, I think that's the general, when I see like a methadone clinic or when I see somebody talking about this, generally speaking, that seems to be the criticism. Yeah, it is feels yeah. confusing. You're using yeah. drugs to get off drugs. And, you know, that individual going through, you know, I only have the, the history of meeting individuals who are on Suboxone um, or in methadone clinics. And because there's not a lot of other things dealt with, uh, it is just something that they're just using um, but they're not really working through some of the, the the other issues of their life. So I think for me, it's been as a practitioner, it's been confusing, um, and I know that that would put me because what from your perspective. So you have a counseling background, right? You counseling are a counselor, sure. yeah. And I mostly see individuals towards figuring out different aspects of everyday life, and so I. So I, why are they using? And so your concern maybe is that using meth, methadone or Suboxone is not going to get to that underlying reason as to why they're using in the first place. Exactly, and I do. I'm not. I'm not against it as much as. Um, I meet individuals who look at that as their golden ticket, and that is simply their golden ticket. And so here they have all these other things that are suppressed. And so I'm never against medicine if it helps someone think clearly. I, in my own history and experience, have just um, seen um, individuals just want 
something to fix them when Christ is the only thing that actually restores us. And so that is where I come from my counseling perspective. And I know that that's a counseling perspective. I'm not, I'm not a. Let's I'm phone a friend coach. on this. Can we phone we a friend? Phone a, we you can. remember what, what, what was that? Regis? What was Regis. that? What show was that when you could phone a friend? Come on. Who wants to be a millionaire? Who wants to be a millionaire? Who wants to be a millionaire? wants to be a millionaire? Would you so like to phone a friend? we've got a friend named Dr. Mark Plaster who actually does this stuff. Uh, he focuses on Suboxone himself. And um, let's give him a call. Yeah, let's yep. do it. Let's phone a friend. Dr. Mark Plaster is a friend of ours who has worked most of his career as an emergency physician. In the ER, he's seen the effects of opioid addiction. In recent years, he spent more time focusing on opioid treatment. Thanks for taking my call. You're, you're welcome, and I'm uh, pleased to talk to you about it. I'm, uh, I, Baltimore certainly uh, has a, is an area that is in great need, and some people are doing some great work, so I'm happy to be a part of that. Yeah. So, of course, you know that there is one approach, and that's just abstinence, just don't use drugs. Right. Um, right. And uh, you happen to be somebody that prescribes a drug for right. those particularly who are struggling with heroin, right? We're not talking about alcohol addiction here or crack necessarily, but we're talking about heroin. Is that correct? Right. The opiate. Opiate. Uh, the one that we see more uh, most in the street right now actually is fentanyl, believe it or not. Um, but uh, there's various uh, formulations of fentanyl, but fentanyl is certainly most dangerous okay. and the most concentrated. So any opioid. But uh, heroin, heroin has been the, the mainstay for many, many years. Uh, it's still out there quite a bit, uh, but now people are getting into fentanyl as well. When we think about Suboxone, we think about methadone, these various drugs that people right. prescribe to help addicts. Uh, what's First of all, what's the difference between methadone and Suboxone? Is there a difference... Uh, yeah, there. Uh, one is suboxone uh, uh, is buprenorphine, uh, which is, and if you can uh, get the, the theme at the end, the P-H-I-N-E is uh, similar to morphine, and buprenorphine uh, is uh, is a synthetic um, opiate uh, that has a, a very very high um, affinity for the, the receptor in the brain that is uh, locked onto by all the opiates. And morphine, fentanyl, all of them has a very, very high affinity for that, which means that when it, when you take uh, buprenorphine, suboxone, subutex, uh, zubsolves, a bunch of the different brand names, and when you take that, it will displace uh, the um, the other street opiate, uh, be it fentanyl or mor morphine or whatever. It does not uh, provide a, a high, a sense of well-being per se. Uh, certainly not, uh, maybe to some degree, but it, and it can certainly have in high doses some sedation, but uh, not as much uh, as the uh, as the morphine and fentanyl and, and other derivatives like that. And as a result of that, people on um, uh, buprenorphine are able to uh, take the medication and and work and spend their you know a normal normal life. I have people, I have a patient who's a rocket scientist, I have a Navy SEAL, I have people who are heads of businesses uh, who are on this medication, have been for quite some time, and it does not impact their daily life, as opposed to uh, taking a big slug of morphine or heroin or fentanyl, which will pretty much put you to sleep if you take enough of it. 
mm-hmm. and uh, um, and also it's a, a little longer acting. So uh, they're they're similar, and so that, now I understand the objection people have. You're trading one drug for another, and uh, I certainly understand that. And uh, if you can quit without help, um, more power to you. Uh, but statistically speaking, only about ten percent of the people who are find themselves dependent upon a morphine or a fentanyl or a heroin or anything like that. Only about 10% of those people over a course of uh, a year or two years will find themselves able to sustain their abstinence. And, um, and in today's environment, when fentanyl is so uh, uh, available, um, an overdose uh, at that point after a period of abstinence, an overdose can, uh, and is likely to be fatal. Uh, so, uh, I, I, if, if you're of the will that you can do that, more power to you. More, absolutely more power to you. Uh, but uh, the uh, substitutional medications like uh, buprenorphine have a much, much higher rate of uh, success over the long haul. And, uh, and the key here is that uh, we, we don't expect you to do anything uh, in, the, in the short run. The idea that you can flip a, 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 a dependence like this in 30 days, there's very few people that can do that. Uh, and when you get on uh, a, a, a what's called MAT, medically assisted treatment, um, like, uh, like buprenorphine, we expect you to probably be on that at least a year. And if you're on it a year, your chances of being getting completely off of it are about 70%. Uh, but it's, it's a long haul, and once you get on it, yes, you are addicted to it, and then we walk you off of it over a long period of time. We, it's glacially slow, but it's eight, you don't suffer during that time period. You don't suffer the withdrawal, and and um, uh, so I, I for it, it's kind of like when you, you know, people have strong smoking habits, and people use nicotine or nic- nicotine or the gum or something like that, and they wean themselves or a patch or something mm-hmm. like that. It's no different. Uh, you you put it in there as a substitution. You take away the the uh, culture of sticking a cigarette in your mouth or uh, or snort, snorting a drug. You take away the culture of that, and then you slowly and glacially take them off the drug while while you are also rebuilding essentially their life. Because uh, oftentimes when a person becomes dependent on on a on an, uh, an opiate like morphine or heroin or, or uh, fentanyl, their life completely is is consumed with the next, the, the, I, I hate to use the next fix, but the next opportunity to use the drug because you're you're in you're dependent and you have to have it or you're going to get sick, mm-hmm. and so your whole life is 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 sort of circled around and organized by how do I get that next uh, medication? Whether I have to do it on the street, whether I've got to sell something, whether I have to do something with my body, um, whether you have to commit a crime, whatever, the whole life circles around that act. And by, by putting a patient on prescribed buprenorphine, they go back their life. They can go back to work. They can go back and rebuild their lives, their families, their reputation, get away from that culture. And uh, so for me, I think that's actually a preferable way to, to go about it. Yeah. In uh, Baltimore, a lot of times around a methadone clinic, we'll see a lot of folks nodding out, you know, uh, sort of creates a culture in the community that a lot of people in the community look down on. Uh, could you just briefly answer why is that? And, it, you know, it, could it be done in a different way? Right. 
Uh, well, first off, uh, I, I was the chief medical officer of the largest methadone clinic in the country. Uh, as people in, in Baltimore know, a turning point clinic down on uh, Milton Avenue, North Avenue, corner of Milton and North. Mm-hmm. And uh, at, in that clinic, we were seeing 3,000 patients a day. 3,000. Three zero 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 patients a day. Wow. Started at four thirty in the morning and didn't finish till almost five o'clock in the evening. Wow. Had eight treatment windows that were open. Okay. It gives you an idea of the prevalence that we have in Baltimore. And we probably most of our patients came within were from a, a, a radius of not more than two miles. Sometimes as far as three miles, but two two three miles is it, the absolute max. And uh, that people are coming in uh, for their methadone. And the problem with methadone, uh, it does work. Uh, it is long-acting, but it's a, what we call a pure agonist, meaning that you can overdose on it. You, know, you can get high on it. Um, it's controlled by the federal government, and it moves you away from getting it from a from a, a you know a cartel or anything like that. Uh, but it does have some of the same uh, you know uh, morphine-like actions, and um, and so people people do sell it. You know, they'll 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 sell the, the they get their dose of uh, um, called hydromorphone uh, of um, methadone. Uh, they'll get their methadone and walk right out, and people in the street start buying it. And it, and it creates a little little subculture itself of uh, buying and selling. Uh, uh, and so you, you work primarily with Suboxone. I work solely with Suboxone at this point. Okay. I did not feel I did not feel that. Uh, 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 methadone was uh, the way to go uh, to um, because it, the problem is one of the, one of the issues, and anybody who's been afflicted by this situation knows that a good portion of the problem is the culture that you're in. Yeah. If all your friends use, then it's going to be very very difficult for you to uh, uh, get out of that because you need to get into uh, a culture that that is doing. That's working. That has families. That's not not moving from fix to fix. And if every single day you have to trace by a thousand people who are all in the same boat that you are, it, it's really hard to escape that. I have patients right now who I, I have three clinics: one in Baltimore, one in Annapolis, one in Southern Maryland. I have patients in Southern Maryland who used to get their heroin from Baltimore and left Baltimore because they said in their in to quote. I couldn't walk down the street without seeing my friends and without my friends saying, you know, come on in, you know, I, I've, I've got some, I've got some stuff here for you. And they had to physically leave the area. And the problem of course, with the methadone uh, uh, clinic is that uh, you have to stay within a few miles of uh, the clinic because you have to go in pretty much every day. And so why is Suboxone different? Uh, well, it's prescribed by, uh, it, you actually can get it from a pharmacy. Oh, okay. And uh, I, 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 when they come to me, uh, I, I have a, uh, I have a special license that I'm able to uh, uh, send an electronic uh, prescription uh, to a pharmacy. Any, it's just a pharmacy like any other. So Walmart, uh, Walgreens, the Rite Aid, uh, all of them, uh, and uh, they can go in and pick up their prescription just like they would if you had high blood pressure, diabetes, or something like that. They pick up a prescription. It's a film or a gum or, or a tablet or something like that and um, um and then so you can live anywhere and if there's no there's no stigma no, uh associated with it sometimes uh, you'll get the hairy eyeball from the pharmacist but uh but then after a while that's the reason why 
in Southern Maryland, I went around and introduced myself to every pharmacist in the area. And so I said, you know, I want you to know these people are working hard to uh, move their life in a different direction. So I want you to treat them with respect. And, um, and, I, and I got it. Uh, mm. The pharmacists, uh, they, they're better. They're better than they were, for sure. And uh, anyway, but the point of it is, is that buprenorphine uh, is more like uh, being prescribed any other medication. If you've got high blood pressure, you go to your doctor every two months and, and, uh, uh, and you get a prescription. Now, with buprenorphine, we were, the, the law, and I think it's good practice, that you come in and see the doctor on a monthly basis. I see my patients every month. And part of the deal is we, we uh, test their urine, see if they're uh, staying you know, true to the course. Uh, I talk to them. There, there's, there's counseling involved if, uh, if they need counseling, and um, we, uh, we become, we have an account, essentially an accountability partner. And if they start messing up, I tell them to come back, and, and we shorten the instead of a month, it's maybe every two weeks. Or if they are really messing up, I'll see them every week, and until they get back on, uh, on track, and then we'll start to straighten them back out again to go every. Uh, uh, every month, and I've got patients that pretty much I, I do by telemedicine now, and they don't, they're not required to come in at all. And uh, uh, maybe once every three or four months, or once a year, uh, I see them in person. But uh, uh, they're doing very well, and and we're in a, a gla- like I say, a glacially slow uh, weaning process. Yeah. And uh, in fact, my Navy SEAL is weaning uh, as we speak. Wow. He was on it from a, a, a war injury, and. Um, he got overdosed and and uh, over medicated for a long period of time. It took him a long time, but he's uh, he's been very successful. If somebody wanted to pursue this, they've got a friend. Uh, they want to pursue this as an option. What is the first step? There's a lot of different ways to go about it. Uh, there are uh, recovery centers. Uh, uh, it, you know, you need to talk to somebody who does this uh, as a, as a medical practice. Sometimes they'll encourage you to go to the inpatient, and I think that's uh, expecting too much out of a, you know, a short term. Uh, and again, the problem you have there is that, uh, you, you, again, you can find yourself halfway houses can sometimes be uh, problematic for people because you, you find some one person in the halfway house who uh, wants to get back into the, the drug life and he starts selling or she starts selling to uh, other people that are in the halfway house and, and uh, end up having, doing badly. So the point being is that not all uh, not all drug treatment centers are equal. Um, I would uh, um, look in, if you're in Baltimore. Let me just tell you, if you're in Baltimore, uh, you just you can look up Tent House Health and Wellness. There's a phone number there, and you can call, and uh, we'll do a screening um, uh, interview. And if you meet the criterion and want to uh, get involved in medically assisted treatment, when we can we can see you. Just that simple. Getting people uh, to uh, that first step of make a call, talk to somebody, get, you know, that first step is the hardest. Okay. That is absolutely the hardest because from there on, I, I can't tell you the, the number of my, my patients come in and they look better, they're happier, they're back to work, they're doing their, their jobs, their families are being restored. I mean, I have, have a patient who was married, had two children. And um, she um, uh, had a hip injury, a back injury, sciatica, got a short course of narcotics, went to an orthopedic surgeon who then gave her a slug of narcotics over a period of a year, and uh, eventually she became addicted. And uh, when they cut her off from her prescribed uh, 
uh, narcotics. Uh, the only thing she could do is start buying it from the street. The next thing she knew, she'd lost her family, lost her home, and uh, was pro- in prostitution in, in Baltimore. And that's the only way she could support her lifestyle. She now is, is back with her family, back with her children, and, ha- and has a job. And is, comes in eternally grateful every time I see her. Uh, for getting her life back. Mm. And so I, I just encourage people, uh, it can be really dark. It can mm-hmm. feel really, really hopeless. Make a call, and I'd be happy to help anybody across the country, even if they're not going to come to my clinic. I'd be happy to talk them through it and, and work with them to, to find a, a place that will, will, will treat them. Well, do you want to put your number out there for people to call? 410-394-9594. Awesome. If you go to tenthousehealth.com, uh, you can get you can find out about it. You can see a little bit about uh, what we what we do here in the Baltimore area, mm-hmm. and uh, what our treatment philosophy is, and, and all that. And we'd be happy to help you, even if you don't live here in Baltimore. Uh, we can we can help you find other other providers. That's great, Doctor Plaster. Thank you so much. This is helpful, and I also thank You're, you thank you for your heart. I know I know. Uh, I know you've got a big heart for those that are suffering from addiction, so just appreciate that. You're welcome. You're absolutely welcome. Thanks for the work you're doing there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, brother. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. And that was really helpful. Yeah. That was really helpful. You know, I like how he compared People use nicotine that are trying to, you know, kick their cigarette uh, addiction. And he likened uh, Suboxone to like a nicotine patch. The, uh, the goal is that they don't stay on it, that they come off and that they do achieve abstinence. He did mention that it would be helpful for an individual coming in to, to receive counseling and that, that his uh, office even does all that they can to kind of connect people to um, opportunities like that. So it was great to, to hear that. Yeah. I want to talk about the church more in like our next episode and uh, break that down. But for for what it's worth, I think that that's such an important point that the it's, it takes, shoot, I'm going to just say it, it takes a commu- it takes a village. It takes Amen. a village. It takes a village. It takes a village. And um, I think the church does need to work with the medical community and not be afraid of that. You know, I'm not saying that Suboxone or, you know, I I think everybody's got to make their personal decision as to what's best, but we don't need to be afraid of these things, right? Right. Um, And at the same time, I appreciate his perspective as you shared, which he shared with us previously, that, um, that the church plays a role as well. Even in what he does, he sees value in the church being this solid community that, you know, if somebody does relapse, it's a place that they can they can always go. It's a place. It's the community that's always going to be there. Thanks for listening to the Stoop Sessions. Be sure to catch us next time. As One Hope exists to build healthy churches in the inner city, check us out and connect at www.onehope.gives.